we got through chapter 11 last time. And to remind you, this whole letter is by way of rebutting accusations that somebody is making about Paul. One of the canards that they say against him is that when you see him in person, he's really meek and mild, but his letters are really nasty. And the example we used is somebody sitting in his basement operating on Twitter or Facebook. And boy, the posts are just righteous and angry and indignant and all that kind of stuff. But when you meet him in person, he's really kind of ineffectual. So the accusation then is that he is taking advantage of some anonymity, not being face to face with anybody, to be strong and courageous, but he's not that way in person. And the other thing that appears to be the case is they are saying that this guy cannot be a genuine minister of God because everywhere he goes, somebody tries to stone him or they run him out of town or he causes a riot or something of that effect. And I will put my words into their mouth that God is a God of order and you're not going to have this riot-causing rebel be an apostle of an orderly God. That seems to be the gist of the argument against him. And so this letter has been a refutation of that. We finished 11 last time, and we'll go on to 12, and then 13 is the end of the book. But in order to get a run at what's going on in 12, you need to back up to 1116. I'm not going to read from 1116 to the end. What I'm going to do is read the paragraph starting in 1116, which gives you an idea of what he's talking about. And then we can go down to 12, and you'll understand that it's in the same vein. So back at 1116. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. So this is sarcasm. Apparently, somebody has been coming through with a three-day pass a briefcase and a Rolex blowing his own horn. And Paul is saying that, hey, Corinthians, you guys have been sucked in by what we would call a prosperity preacher or a televangelist or somebody of that nature. And Paul says, I'm not a boaster, but if that's what it's going to take to get your attention, I'll go ahead and do some boasting, just like they do. So then he goes through a list of what has happened to him. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one, and so forth. So that's the tenor of this section that we are in, and chapter 12 continues in that voice. So now skip down to 2 Corinthians 11.30. So if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
The God and Father of the Lord Yeshua, he who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Erechus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, one of the things that he is doing is showing his own weakness. And what that will be a springboard to is the fact that he is operating in the strength of Messiah. He's not claiming any personal prowess or power. In fact, he's counting himself as weak in the natural, but strong in the Lord. So now down to chapter 12. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Now, obviously, Paul is that man. What he's saying is, 14 years ago, I was caught up into heaven, and I'm not sure whether it was a vision or I'm not sure whether it was literal, but I was, and I saw things that I was instructed not to talk about. And that guy, the one that was caught up into heaven, is a real hot shot, but I, Paul, am weak. It's important to understand that the guy that was caught up into heaven is Paul, and he's talking about himself spiritually in contradistinction to himself physically. 12.5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep from being too elated. So the surpassing greatness of the revelation is having been caught up, if you will, into heaven. The first thing he's saying is he's doing a left-handed boast about having been caught up into heaven, either in a vision or in the body, he doesn't know, and having had revelations of great things revealed to him, but also being instructed not to talk about them. It's sort of like when Kay and I were first married. I worked for a defense intelligence agency. And sitting around at night talking about something in the news. And we'd talk for a while, and I'd finally say, no, that's not right, but I can't tell you why. It's classified. I had access to information that I could not share with her other than to say that this particular thing in the news was not being reported accurately. That was all I could say. So what Paul is saying here is I had this either vision or out-of-body experience or whatever it was, but I can't tell you what it was. That kind of a, an argument, if you will. All right, so now we get to the throne in the flesh, which is one of the places where lots of people fetch up and camp out. So we'll fetch up there and camp out. Let's pick it up at verse 6. So we're at 12.6. 
Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, I want to be simply what I appear to be, nothing more. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, so the thorn in the flesh. There are a number of incorrect opinions about what it is. All except one of them is going to be incorrect. I am going with two things, the principle of expositional constancy and the tenor of the letter so far in explaining what I think it is. And you will have preachers who will preach on this. And one of the teachings that I have heard, especially preachers who teach against healing today, they say things like healing and so forth passed with the apostles and they are no longer gifts available to us. And the thing that they use as their justification is here Paul was ill. Ask God to heal him, and God didn't do it. So the fact that you have an illness, and you have asked God to heal you, and he doesn't, you know, what makes you think you're any better than Paul? I have heard teachings to that effect. One of the theories is that he had an eye affliction. In the desert, dry eyes become a real problem. And the places where you can buy salves and those kinds of things, and that kind of stuff is a big business in desert climate. And the justification for that is in one of his letters, he says, see, I am signing this really big. And they say, well, see, see, he couldn't see well enough to sign it normally, so he had to sign it in big block letters because he couldn't see that well. I think that there's a Hebrew word for that. It's called baloney. I don't think that's what it is at all. If we go to Numbers 33:55, and this is Moses' instruction to the tribes as they're getting ready to go into the land. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain will be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land where you dwell. This is the only other place where a thorn in the flesh is mentioned. Assuming that Paul understands the Torah, which I'm very, very comfortable that he does, for him to use such a metaphor, I will suggest to you, is he would use it as a Torah metaphor. In that case, the thorn in his flesh is a messenger of Satan to harass me. It's a person or people. Now, the book of Galatians. The whole thing about the book of Galatians is Paul went and planted a church in Galatia, and some messianic Jews of the circumcision party came along behind him and were telling the Gentiles there that in order to be saved, they had to be circumcised. And that controversy led to the book of Galatians. The 
tenor of the letter here in 2 Corinthians is Paul has planted a church and he's left. And someone has come along afterwards and is sowing heresy and dissension within that church. So my belief is that the thorn in the flesh is in fact people. And there are people that are coming, in the case of the Galatians, coming from Jerusalem, and they are Jews of the circumcision, Messianic Jews, but they are of the circumcision party. Don't know exactly who it is here in Corinthians, but I'm getting the impression that we have sort of the same thing going on in Corinthians that we had going on in Galatians. And so the thorn in his flesh is these false teachers that are following along behind him and messing up the church that he has planted. He's saying that he has been stoned, he has been beaten, he has been persecuted. And furthermore, I have got this thorn in the flesh. In other words, I have been afflicted with all of these things. And part of the letter is answering, if this guy's a real apostle, how come all this stuff's happening to it? And so what he's saying is, all of this stuff is happening to me, partially, so that I will not be seen as strong in myself, but my strength will be seen as coming from the Lord, rather than as coming from me. And this thorn in the flesh and being beaten and let down on the wall, all those kinds of things are all these things that demonstrate that he himself is not mighty and powerful in his own flesh. The only thing he's got going for him is God. And God, by the way, says, in relation to these people who are harassing him, no, I'm not going to stop that. I'm going to let that go too, because what you're saying, which is to say you are speaking my word, that's sufficient. I really don't want to take all these things away. One of the things that we said on Shabbat, or I've said lots and lots and lots of times, is the world is intentionally difficult. God could have made us perfect. He could have made us like little cattle that he vaccinates periodically and we just go around and munch grass and don't have any real cares in the world. He could have made us that way. He did not. And the fact that he did not is a design feature. It's not a bug. And the reason for that is because we need adversity to grow and reach our full potential. And so that's what Paul is saying here. In order for me to reach my full potential as a teacher of the gospel, these adversities that I go through are just part of the deal. One of the traps that people fall into is all of the calamities in their life are brought on by God to teach them something. I don't believe that. There are plenty of calamities in this world due to the fact that we have an adversary and due to the fact that we were made with a Yetzirah, an evil inclination, that we create enough problems for one another that God doesn't need to do that. And what God will do, if you call on him, is he will generally help you make it through that. He will not necessarily take you out of it, nor did he put you in it. But, having said that, if you go through these trials with the proper attitude, one of the things that will come out of it will be spiritual growth, which is pleasing to him. Sort of like when you plant a garden, Nobody ever puts rocks in the garden. There's already plenty enough there. But the fact that you've got to work on the rocks and the plant has to work its way around the rocks and all those kinds of things makes strong, healthy plants. 
But the gardener didn't even put them there. The ground has them. Verse 11, maybe. I have been a fool. You forced me into it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. So what he's saying is, I came among you with the power of the gospel and with signs and wonders. I was healing people and all those kinds of things. And the thing that I gave to you is in no way less than what I have given to every other church I have planted, except that I didn't mooch off of you while I was there. And he said, huh, seems that not mooching off of you was a mistake because these super apostles, he calls them, apparently are mooching off of them and they are regarding that as a sign of authenticity. And he says, forgive me for not mooching off of you, basically. Verse 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So what he's saying is, I am not coming to get anything from you, I am coming to get you. I, in the sense then, am your spiritual parent, and it's my obligation to provide for you, not your obligation to provide for me. 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. So what he's saying is that whoever's coming along behind him, if you will, is thorn in the flesh, are saying, yeah, 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 he, he, he tricked you. All this mealy mouse stuff that he did and so forth, it was just a trick, and he deceived you. What you really need to do is take up a big collection for us. I'm serious. And by the way, that's a very effective technique because people are designed to want to sacrifice. So a preacher who stands up and says, you've got to dig deep and sacrifice for the Lord, and here's the basket, touches something in the human heart that responds. Because we do want to give. We do want to sacrifice and so forth. So what these super apostles, so-called, are saying is, if he really liked you, he would have pleased you. So we're down to verse 17. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So not only have I not fleeced you, I didn't send anybody to, to fleece you, except for the fundraiser that he did several chapters back, and that was for the saints in Jerusalem. 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. 
of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So he's saying he's coming again, and what he really doesn't want to find is the church in disorder. And he really doesn't want to find a whole bunch of people that have been unrepentant sin. Continuing on out of chapter 13, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So what he's saying is, if, you know, don't make me come up there. I'm coming back a third time. And what I don't want to find is the church in disorder. Because I am coming back, not in my own power, but in the power of God. And I will take appropriate action in the power of God to deal with whatsoever I find. So better for you and me both that you get yourselves straightened out so that the visit may be pleasant and joyful as opposed to harsh. Verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Yeshua Messiah is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So what he's saying is, look at yourself in the light of the gospel that I gave you. And realize that if you are staying true to the gospel, Christ is in you. If you failed the test, he is not. And then, I hope you will find out that we, remember that we have we, you, and they in this letter, we is Paul and his companions. You is the church in Corinth. They are the ones that are harassing them or teaching them incorrectly. So in verse 6 he says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, which is to say that our doctrine is pure, our witness is pure, and we are operating in the power of Messiah. Verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. And again, the seem to have failed goes back, I think, to the false gospel that is being spread in this church. So if you're looking at us in light of this false gospel, we may seem to be failures. But what I am hoping is that you are not. Verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad when you are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. What he's saying is, let's get the ship righted here so that when I come, I don't have to write it. Sort of like the Bussar teacher that I am currently reading talks about two circumcisions of the heart. So there's two circumcisions of the heart in Deuteronomy, 10 and 30. The first one is circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. So you're the one who is to circumcise your heart. And then the second one in Deuteronomy 30, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart. The first one you do, 
the second one he does. What Moses is saying in the first case is, as you go into the land, if you follow Torah, worship God, and do the things you're supposed to do, you will remain in the land for a long time. However, if you do not, you will go into exile. And then the circumcision in Deuteronomy 30 is a new covenant circumcision where God will bring you back into the land and he will circumcise your heart. So I've always taken that to be human circumcision where you do it yourself is going to be incomplete because we cannot perfect ourselves. So the only complete circumcision that is done correctly will ultimately be done by God. I've always taken it that way. I still think that's a correct understanding. The Musar teacher has a different perspective. His perspective is, if you circumcise your heart, it will be a whole lot less painful than if God has to do it for you. And you can see that everywhere. You go along and you go down the wrong path. You've seen people that go down the wrong path and go down the wrong path until all of a sudden God's universe snaps them up short. And when God's universe snaps them up short, the crash is spectacular. They wind up dead or in prison or in really bad straits when God finally takes action to sort them out. Much better if you get yourself sorted out and God never has to do that. So the Musar rabbis take on these two circumcisions is learn, circumcise your own heart so that you don't have to go through the painful circumcision when reality finally catches up with you and God does the circumcision. Very different emphasis. My understanding is that it's a, Jesus will make us all new covenant, he'll transform our hearts, it'll all be wonderful and we'll just go off with our little angel wings and that's sort of the first interpretation. Second interpretation is, oh shoot, I just crashed and I'm looking up from the gutter and now I have no place else to go. So God has jerked me up short and he's doing the circumcision, which is a lot more painful than if I never got into the gutter in the first place. So I'm now down to verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.